0: If you have a Bible, it would be a really good time right now to open it to Romans chapter 8. And we're continuing a series of messages called Gospel Reset. And this is the third message on the doctrine of adoption. And pastors are usually making apologies for repeating... A particular topic so much I don't think I could ever say everything that you need to hear and I need to hear and I need to know and you need to know about adoption in 50 messages much less three but that's because uh, of something Sinclair Ferguson said if you were to ask me who's my favorite living preacher uh, I would say Sinclair Ferguson because he combines a lot of great things together in one person he's not only a impeccable theologian but he's also a churchman he loves the church he understands the doctrine of the church and and thirdly he teaches preaching and and when someone like me listens to him preach it's a beautiful thing it's it's a true symphony for a person like me but here's what he said about adoption And I read this a long time ago, and I'm still feeling the effects of it. Here's what he said. He said, We all have a native inability to believe that salvation is entirely of God's grace and love. We're slow to realize the implications of that. We are sons, but we are in danger of having the mindset of hired servants. Furthermore, if there's nothing else the devil can do to mar our joy in Christ, he will try to produce in us what our forefathers used to call a bondage frame of spirit. That is why he sends us the spirit of adoption. What is that? You did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear, but you receive the Spirit of Sonship and by him we cry, Abba, Father. Paul is referring to the Holy Spirit, which brings us into a deep-seated persuasion that we are in reality such sons of God. If it is a fact that God has adopted us into his family, Then the Spirit assures us this is true and enables us to live in the enjoyment of such a rich spiritual blessing. He sends his Spirit into our hearts, bringing us the deep spiritual and psychological security that rests on the objective fact that our sins are forgiven, we are righteous in Christ, and we belong to the Lord. Here now the word of the Lord, as we read from Galatians—excuse uh, me, Romans, chapter eight and verse fourteen. For we, uh, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. This is God's word. Let's look to the Lord together as we pray. Our gracious God and Father, we are a people who are in great need. We need your word more than we need our next breath. Uh, We are starved for your presence, starved for your word to speak to us and reassure us and encourage us and convict us and call us to account. We are in such uh, a dark place. We live in such a... A dark world and we need a more sure word we need something we can live by we need something we can stand upon we need something we can rely upon without doubt and without fear and that is the gift we have in your word we pray today your spirit would do that which only he can and that is help us see it and understand it and get it and never get over it and this we pray In Christ's name. Amen. It's always important when you're opening the Bible and looking at a particular verse to have a sense of the context of the passage because context shapes and contours meaning. And so we all know, most of us, that Romans 8 is probably one of the great chapters in the Bible regarding uh, our salvation. Beginning with, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. But more immediately to the context, in verse 13, Paul has finished drawing, as it were, a line of demarcation of the two opposing forces of redemptive history, spirit and flesh, where he placed believers on the side of the spirit. Christians, therefore, are those who are indwelt by the spirit of Christ. Um, who have been set free from sin and death and the law and who are empowered to resist living in conflict with the flesh. I would say one of the greatest evidences that you're a genuine, real, down to the core believer is you have a sense of the conflict that you are engaged in between spirit and flesh, that the Spirit of God dwells in you. And one of the confirming realities of that is you find yourself out of step with flesh and everything that is flesh, the world, uh, the mind of the evil one, uh, the sinful nature, as it were, And so what he's telling us is what we find in verses 14 through 17 is a transitional passage that uses the theme of adoption to move between the spirit-flesh contrast... Of verses 1 through 13 to the following section on the future dimension of Christian hope in verses 18 through 39. And so the substance of what we're looking at today verses 14 through 17 is that those who are led by God's Spirit are adopted as children of God and such adoption brings with it a totally new status. It provides something we all want but so few of us really know is an intimate relationship with God and it secures a glorious future as co-heirs with Christ in glory and so that is what we will spend our time the balance of our time doing as we look at this passage and one of the things I want to call your attention to are the three things we're going to be looking at first we're going to look at the image of adoption And we're going to talk about what that is. Secondly, the benefits of adoption. I have about six or seven. We'll talk about some of them. And finally, the spirit of adoption. Because this is such a critical, critical truth for us all. First, uh, throughout this passage, he calls us the sons of God. And three times he calls us the children of God. And so in reality, we know from past sermons that adoption was a much more customary legal procedure in Roman society than it was in Hebrew culture or the ancient Near Eastern culture. Paul, being a Roman citizen, therefore, was quite familiar with the procedure. Adoption usually occurred when a wealthy adult needed an heir for his estate. He would then adopt someone as heir. It could be a child, it could be a teenager, or it could be an adult. The moment adoption occurred, several things were immediately true of this new son. His old debts and legal obligations were totally canceled. He got a new name and was instantly heir of everything his father had. His new father became instantly liable for all of his actions, his debts, his crimes, etc. But the new son also had a set of new obligations to honor and please his father. All of this lies behind this passage. And so when we talk about being sons of God, as I said last week, We're also the bride of Christ. I am a male by gender, but by theology and by truth of Scripture, I am part of the bride of Christ. You may be here this morning, you're a woman, you're a believer, and when I say sons of God, that doesn't necessarily hit the nail on the head. But what Paul is saying here is all the privileges that go with being sons are now extended not just to men, not just to the male, but also to the female. We looked at that carefully uh, in other messages. But here's where we want to go. First, what does it mean to say that I am a child of God and that I have been adopted into God's family? First, the image of adoption tells us That not one single person is born into a true relationship with God. The fact that we receive, verse 15, our sonship, we receive our status proves that there was a time when we did not have it. In which we were lost, in which we were not naturally his children. And so sonship is not a given by simply being born physically. Sonship is a product of the work of God in the soul. And to receive the sonship means that the father-child relationship with God is not automatic. We were originally in our sin and trespasses uh, rather orphans or slaves or both. Secondly, the image of adoption tells us that our relationship with God is based completely on a legal act by the father. You don't win a father, and you don't negotiate for a parent. Adoption is a legal act on the part of the father. It is very expensive and costly for him. There is nothing the son does to win or earn the status It is simply received, it is pure gift, and it is embraced and received, and so being a child of God is the work of the Father, setting us apart, naming us his own, choosing us for himself, and then the Spirit bringing that reality to bear upon us once we have trusted Christ. By the way, the Holy Spirit must regenerate us. He must make us alive spiritually. He must penetrate our being with His Spirit and give us life in order for us to ever receive Christ. So we live by resurrection power before we actually believe. Regeneration always precedes or comes before faith. So the entire Trinity is engaged in this process. But a third thing about the image of adoption is this. Verse 14 shows us that there, what makes sons of God is that we have the Spirit of God. Notice the phrase, those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. The English is fairly clear here, but the Greek's even clearer. Hoyso. Our soy, those is a very comprehensive and is best rendered all those and everyone who is led by the Spirit of God is God's Son. Paul says in effect the body of those who have the Spirit constitute the body of those who are the sons of God. So the identification of adoption is that we have the Spirit of God. Everyone with the Spirit is adopted by the Father, and no one is adopted by the Father uh, who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. If the Spirit of God hasn't entered you, then you are not God's Son. Now, uh, naturally, that would provoke in you a question, well, how do I know whether or not God's Spirit has entered me? You'll have to save that for point three. We'll get there. But not yet. Not yet. But what I want to tell you is it's important to see the clarity of his teaching because it's often common out in culture and the world we traverse in that everybody is God's child because God has created them. Uh, We would rather say that everyone is God's offspring, roughly meaning descendants, but not everyone is God's child. You become an offspring of God merely by physical birth. You become a child of God uh, after receiving Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. John tells us in chapter 1 verse 12, For as many as received him and believed on his name, he, came, he gave authority to become children of God. Sonship is given. No one has it naturally except jesus christ who is the god man many of us want to think that the leading of the spirit has to do with the spirit helping us to make decisions guiding us as uh, jonathan talked about in sunday school to the right spouse the right job the right living location Um, but this overlooks an extremely tight connection in verse 14 with verse 13 It's a continuation in the sentence tying what Paul is about to say to what he has just said. In verse uh, 13, he says, Why this great power, power over sin, is available to us, it is because we are sons of children of God. So being led by the Spirit must be the same thing as putting to death the deeds of the sinful body. In other words, we are led by the Spirit when we hate the things the Spirit hates that's sin, and love the things he loves, and that's Christ. We are thus led by the Spirit. That is the way in which we're led by the Spirit. And this concept of led here points back to the greatest salvific moment in the Old Testament, which is the exodus of Egypt, in which God's people were led out of Egypt by the uh, cloud by day and the fiery pillar by night, Indicating that God had saved his people, led them out of the bondage of slavery, led them into the liberty, adopted them there as his father, as their father, called them his segula, his special, precious possession. And so uh, in these words, Paul is looking back to the Exodus and saying this idea of being led by the Spirit isn't so much day-to-day, moment-to-moment guidance as it is being led out of slavery to sin and alienation from God and distance from God into the most intimate relationship, this side of heaven. And so that's what the leading of the Spirit in reality here is. Uh, refers to. And so what are the privileges then of being an adopted son of God? What are the benefits we enjoy because God has adopted us into his family? The first one I would draw your attention to is in verse uh, 15a, not fear but sonship. We have a sense of security an employee or a slave or a servant basically obeys out of fear of punishment or fear of losing a job or pride i'm not the kind of person who doesn't do my work or to save face but a child parent relationship is not characterized by a fear of losing the relationship so we have security because of adoption that's one of the great benefits We also have authority. We're no longer slaves, but we're sons. In a house, slaves have no authority. They do what they are told. But children have authority in the house under their parents. The children of God are given authority over sin and over the devil. They are to move about in the world knowing that the world itself belongs to their father. There should be a confidence and poise about us children have the honor of the family name there is a wonderful new status conferred upon us to where we no longer walk with our head down, struggling as it were, fearful to even look up, but we now hold our heads high with boldness and authority because we know we possess the one thing that can never be taken away from us. We are children of God, and everything that entails and everything that brings that brings with it is now mine, present tense. Therefore, I don't have to be afraid of anyone or anything in an ultimate sense. And that gives me a boldness. It gives me a boldness in prayer. It gives me a a sense of boldness in life. That I don't live defeated. But that I am a child of the King. My Father owns it all. Rules over it all. Holds me in the palm of His hand. Uh, another benefit that I would like to mention is the benefit of intimacy. Notice that we cry Abba Father, and in the original language Abba is an Aramaism, which is best translated as Daddy, a term of the greatest intimacy. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, Abba was the word that was used familiarly by children talking to their fathers. A child does not always address his father as father. He uses such terms as papa, daddy, dad. This is the kind of meaning represented by the word Abba. It was a word lisp by little children. But notice that we cry, as it were, Abba, Father. It is a very strong word, and clearly the apostle used it quite deliberately. It means a loud cry. It expresses deep emotions. Well, what does that imply? Well, it implies, obviously, real knowledge of God. God is no longer a distant, remote, faraway God in a faraway place. He's not merely a God in whom we believe intellectually, theologically, theoretically, and doctrinally only. He is my Papa. He is my Daddy. All this is possible to one who is not a child of God at all. Uh, Worship and praying are spontaneous. It is the spontaneity of the child who sees the Father. Not only spontaneity, but confidence. Do you have that in your prayer life? Do you have that sense that you're accepted in the Beloved? That, that the jury is not out any longer? One of, one of the reasons uh, that the Roman Catholic Church, after the Reformation, uh, moved on what was called the Counter-Reformation, is because one of their theologians spent a great deal of time saying, if you really teach people what these reformers are saying, what they're saying about justification by faith alone, through grace alone, and Christ alone, if you really teach our people what it means to be an adopted child of God, they will take that as a license to sin, they will run wild, they will all become rabid antinomians. Well, it's in the Bible, isn't it? See, most of the time we think the way to cure an antinomian is pour on the law. Now, the way to cure an antinomian is to help him understand, if he is in Christ, what it means to be in Christ. And the closeness and the intimacy we can enjoy. No longer standing outside the gate. No longer outside of the Holy of Holies. No longer distance from God. But ultimate intimacy, intimacy entering the very throne room of God through the person of Christ, we have intimacy we can know him uh and it, it's a it's a great deal of difference between knowing about i know a lot about martin luther i know a lot about john calvin i know a lot about jonathan edwards but i don't know any of them number one they're dead and number two why would they want to waste time on me when there's jesus to know, you know but I don't know them. I know about them, but I don't know. You may have been coming to church all your life. You may be a person who's studied the Bible. You may be a person who's doctrinally and theologically correct. You have all the petals on your tulip. You no longer play with daisies. He loves me. He loves me not. He loves me. He loves me not. But you know your theology, but you don't feel it. It doesn't grip you. It's not not a renewing power in your experience. God is still way out there. Because you haven't yet heard of the doctrine of adoption. Which puts you in the family. Another benefit is assurance. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. When we cry out to God as Abba. The Spirit of God somehow comes alongside us with our spirit and gives us assurance that we are truly in the family, in the family of God. There's a lot of debate about what the nature of this testimony is, but it appears to be an inner witness in the heart, a sense, yes, that he really, really loves me. He really loves me. The witness of the Spirit. John Calvin said this. He says, There's a lot of marvelous objective evidence that the Bible is God's Word. He said, But how do I know the Bible's God's Word? There's a lot of wonderful truth in Scripture teaching us about being saved and about being in a right relationship with God and the Holy Spirit indwelling us but how do I know I'm done it Uh, I have it I experience I feel. how do I know the spirit of God is in me and one of the ways you know the spirit of God is in you and one of the ways you know the Bible is true and really the only way you know the Bible is true is because of the witness of the spirit to your spirit that is ultimate he is Confirms in me the reality of the truth and when somebody preaches the truth of the Bible to me, it rings true. It's powerful. You know, I don't want to be Jim and Tammy Faye Baker who said, You know because you know because you know because you know because you know. (laughs) No. It is the witness of the Holy Spirit. And he knows how to get it done. He knows how to communicate that truth to you. When people ask us, when we were moving here in 1988 to start this church, some of my friends asked me, why are you going to Las Vegas? And I said, to start the Tim and Pammy show. That's why. I said, that's what you think anyway. But the Spirit also gives us assurance We also, in verse 17, it tells us, receive an inheritance. We are children, then we're heirs. This means we have an incredible future that we cannot even conceive of what it will be when God gives us, shows us his glory, and then lets us be partakers of his glory. In more ancient times, the first child, the firstborn, was the heir, There may have been a large number of children and the children were loved, but the heir got the larger part of the wealth. That's why the prodigal son's older brother was so mad. Why? Because his son took some of his stuff, or his brother, the younger brother, took some of his inheritance. But the heir got the largest part of it, carried on the family name. This was the way great families kept influence and dynasties intact. That's why it wasn't divided or dissipated. Now, in a breathtaking turn, he calls all Christians heirs of God. It's a miracle. It's an absolute miracle. Because the heir got the lion's share of wealth of the parent. Paul is saying that what we are in store for is so grand and glorious that it will be and feel as if we had alone gotten most of the glory of God what a powerful way to think. You see what some of us want so much now is we want life on this earth to be heaven. (laughs) I want that. I want things to work out. I didn't want to get up this morning and search for my driver's license for an hour. You know where I found it? In my pocket. And I thought what a waste of a moment. You know, I'm a preacher. It's supposed to work out right for me on Sunday, is it not? I'm supposed to have a smooth life. We're not home yet. We're not in heaven yet. We're not there. I could tell you the old Teddy Roosevelt story, but I've told that one too many times. But the story is, we want heaven now. We want the full. We already have a taste, a foretaste, but just a sip. Of what it means to be an heir of Christ and his glory but then we will have it the not yet will become everything it will become ours and and, you know I, I feel the pain I feel your pain I feel the struggle I feel your struggle I have your struggle but we're not home yet and we need to keep that in mind and, and to make sure that our values are set in the right place. Another thing, another great benefit of adoption is discipline. Now if we're children, then we are heirs. If indeed we share in his sufferings, fathers always discipline their children. When parents discipline a child, they allow or introduce a milder form of pain to enter in order to teach and mature the child away from behavior that will lead to far greater pain later. Tom Landry was a great football coach, so his team said, because he had the ability to make you do what you didn't want to do so you could become what you always wanted to become. That's discipline, and God provides that. God is our Father. He provides discipline in our lives. Sometimes you're wondering, and not all discipline is related to sin. A lot of it is. Some of it is, but it's not punishment. God has already punished my sin completely in the body of his Son, and there is no double jeopardy with God. God has punished in full everything I deserve to get. Jesus took for me, okay? But God loves me too much to leave me to myself and let me destroy myself and destroy uh, the reality of what I know in Christ. And so times God will bring it too. My, my dad was a pretty strong disciplinarian. I mean, when my dad sat down at night and unbuckled his belt, we all jumped afoot. We were all looking at each other going, who did it? Because we had to watch each other when we got disciplined. I, I don't know where he came up with that. But it was effective. But my dad would spank. He he would spank. Never abused me. I never felt abused one moment. Never felt like he crossed the line and took out personal issues on me. But my dad would spank. And he did spank. But I never doubted for one moment my dad loved me. And I always told him. I said, "Uh, I, you know, he would say... It's all fathers do. This hurts me more than it does you. Well, I would say then don't do it. Don't do it. There's no need to do it. Now being a father, I know exactly what he was talking about. There's no joy in the discipline. But it is a mark of sonship. And if you can indulge yourself in sin and, quote, get away with it, I wonder about you. And you should wonder about you because God does bring discipline to his children. Actually, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, it says he skins alive every son he receives. See, most preachers won't tell you that, but that's what the Greek says. He skins you alive. Why? Because he loves you too much to let you go and destroy yourself. And then, of course, family resemblance, that's enough of that. But what I wanted to get into in closing, and you've been listening pretty fast, so I'm almost done, Um, is I did want to talk about differences between being a slave and a son, if I can find that particular page. Yes, here we are. I'm going to read you some contrasting statements to sort of paint the picture of whether or not you truly have moved past this spirit of fear and entered into the full possession of sonship. And so here are some of the things that distinguish the two: uh, what is the slave versus the child mentality? Slave, grace is maintaining your strength and power so to live a better life. Child, grace is a transforming power to be melted by spiritual understanding of gospel truth. Faith, slave, is trying hard to do good and be better, establishing your own r- record, a righteousness so God and others will accept you. Child, faith is a discipline of remembering and living every moment as an accepted child of God. Slave, obedience focuses nearly and completely on external duties. Examinations of attitudes and motivations is too traumatic and it's ignored. I never forget the first time I read J.I. Packer talk about what a good work is. He said, not only is a good work doing something God has commanded, but a good work is also doing something with the right motivation in view, that you love God and you want it to bring glory to him. And the first time I ever heard that, I thought, Tim Posey, you're such a glory hog. You, you really do. You really do like people to praise you. You really do enjoy people giving you glory. You really, really, really way too much like being lifted up. I don't think I'm alone. But I, I came to that realization and repentance ensued by the grace of God. A child, obedience is seeking to please God first in their attitude of love, then obeying His will. Different lifestyle. A slave lives a totally fear-based existence. A child lives in faith, working through love. A slave has compulsive obedience, obeys God and moral codes out of fear of rejection, a compulsive driven moralism, drivenness, unrealistic, unrealistic goals, often a lot of self-criticism. A child obeys out of joy in your father and out of gratitude for the certainty of his love. How can I live so ungratefully to one who will never reject me? Slaves are controlled by people. Expectations and opinion of others become the real moral standard. We're controlled by what people think of us. A child, integrity and courage is easier. The only person whose opinion counts is my father. Who cares what the rest think? Slave, a lot of hiding, a lot of strategies to hide our inner and outer failings from ourselves and one another. It includes gossiping, blame-shifting, anger at other races and classes and obsessions and workaholicism. Child, open and transparent, freedom from having to put up any kind of front, able to appreciate people who are different and hurting. Slave, isolation, growing feeling that nobody understands, nobody really cares, no one can ever be trusted. Child, because of openness and transparency, there's a lack of self-pity slave despair in troubles sees difficulties as paybacks from God result is either guilt because there's an awareness of moral failure or bitterness because there's a feeling of moral accomplishment and I don't deserve this child learns to see discipline as fatherly loving instruction preparing us for future tests and showing us how to grow in patience. Slave, begrudging repentance. Admitting failure is destructive of one's very basis for living. That being a sense of moral adequacy. So repentance is galling. Child, admitting failure is the basis of a Christian self-image as an adopted child. Repentance reminds us anew of the magnitude of God's love. Repentance is quick and repentance is willing. So you see, that's the difference between what Sinclair Ferguson called that mindset that is driven by a spirit of bondage rather than the freedom that we have in Christ. It's so hard at times to tap into the resources of this reality. Um, And I think because of that, some of us struggle with things Like assurance. Jonathan Edwards put it this way. This is the heart of a son. What have I done? What love, what mercy, what blood, what grace have I despised and trampled upon? Is this the return I make to the Father for his love, to his Son for his blood, to the Spirit for his grace? Do I thus requite the Lord? Have I defiled the heart that Christ died to wash? What can I say to the dear Lord Jesus? Do I account communion with him of so little value? Shall I endeavor to disappoint the very purpose of the death of Christ, which is to bring us into the family? Adopted to sonship. No longer a spirit of fear but a spirit of sonship. Do you know that? Is that your reality? Is this something that resonates with you? Or is this something that you struggle with? You better say struggle. You better say struggle. And the reason I say that is because nobody gets us down. People always say, why do you preach the gospel so much? Because I don't understand it. I'm trying to get an understanding of it. I get it, but I don't get it. Sometimes I don't get that I don't get it. But I'm beginning to get it more, but I don't totally get it. That's why I preach it. Because I think, I think it'll help you and me a whole lot. Because there's too much bad news and we need some good news. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reality of what we've heard today, that it is truth. Truth. It is truth that we know and experience and feel. And Lord, I pray that we would all come to a greater place in our experience of all these benefits of being an adopted child of God, that it would genuinely grip grip us and change us. We all have an orphan spirit, we all have a slave mentality. That was who we were, but we are no longer. Help us to adopt by the work of your Spirit the reality of sonship. Now, fathers, we continue to worship you. May we give as those who are sons who cry out, Abba, Father, and delight in you. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.